You're listening to Labor Wave Revolution Radio. What we have, like, at the site of production is living workers in the present being exploited by machines that are made up of the dead labor of workers in the past. Normally, we confront dead labor as an adversary in our work relationship. So the question then becomes, what would have to happen in order for us to forge a union between the living and the dead? We spoke with activist, author, and social theorist A.K. Thompson. A.K. Thompson is a professor of social movements and social change at Ithaca College. His publications include Sociology for Changing the World, Black Block, White Riot, Keywords for Radicals, The Contested Vocabulary of Late Capitalist Struggle, and Spontaneous Combustion. Our conversation with A.K. Thompson focused on his most recent publication, Premonitions, Selected Essays on the Culture of Revolt, which was published by AK Press and is available at akpress.org. The essays are wide-ranging and illuminating, covering topics from Occupy Wall Street and decolonization to political violence, art criticism, and James Cameron's avatar. We were not able to cover the entirety of the book in our chat, but touched on the above topics along with strategic prospects for forging a union with the dead and coming to terms with the monumental task of winning a revolution. We highly encourage listeners to go out and get a copy of the book and engage with its entire contents. It is one of my personal favorites of the entire year, and I couldn't recommend it enough. We also at Labor Wave would like to ask people to support us by following us on facebook.com backslash Corvallis liking us and following us on soundcloud.com backslash laborwave and also just sending us a line at laborwavenews at gmail.com we only play the music of john dwyer of the ocs and damaged bug as mr john dwyer has given us express permission to use his music without copyright so long as we don't quote break to the scary right we hope you enjoy our conversation with ak thompson The introduction to this collection contains the book's most personal moments, in my opinion, and it appears enveloped by a certain kind of mood that's pervasive on the left that I would describe as the mood of feeling defeated, or in the ways that you put it is as, quote, not knowing how to win, end quote. You write against the pathologizing version of the terms that, quote, neurosis reveals itself to be the normal state of affairs brought on by the everyday repressions demanded by the war between what is and what's longed for, neurosis permeates our being and gives shape to the terrain of struggle, end quote. So how, given this situation, can the left face reality as you insist is necessary and learn to win? And what does facing reality really entail? One of the things I try to do in the introduction is to clarify what we on the radical left might understand by the term neuroses. So as a concept, it's associated with Freud and with psychoanalysis, which is an ambivalent political tradition. It leads to left conclusions just as often as it leads to conservative ones. Um, For me, what's so valuable about the concept of neuroses is that it highlights the ways that we end up operating in situations where we can't achieve our desires directly, and sometimes we can't even say what they are. And so neuroses arise at that moment when we try to resolve things that we can't necessarily even know that we're trying to resolve uh, without actually getting to the thing that we want in a direct way. I think that this is a phenomenon that exists all through society, right, that arises from the basic lack that's inherent in human existence, where there's always a hole in our heart. There's always a thing that's missing. But I think that for radicals, this sense of lack becomes more acute because we're critical of the world and its inadequacies. And we're critical also of our movements and their inadequacies. Uh, But oftentimes, what we end up seeing when we start doing an analysis of social movements is that there's a total disconnect between the objectives that we set for ourselves and then the means that we plan to use in order to achieve them. 
So probably a common experience for a lot of people is to go to a rally against some terrible injustice and to kind of be happy to be there, but also be wondering, like, how is this supposed to work, right? Like, how does this thing that we're doing right now coincide with the attainment of the objectives that we set for ourselves? And the telltale sign that there's a disconnect usually happens when somebody over the, the PA for the demonstration, you know, in closing says, and this is only a beginning, right? And so we're left wondering how many times do we have to do the beginning before we get to the point of you know, moving forward. This disconnect between our objectives and the means that we use to achieve them, in some ways is a classic example of neuroses, uh, where it signals a failure to come to terms with what's actually demanded of us in order to achieve the aims that we set for ourselves, uh, the objectives that we set for ourselves. And I think there's good reasons that that happens. You know, we're not able very often to come to terms with just the the weight of the burden uh, that our political commitments brings with them. Um, and I think that this is especially true when we think about all the ways that radical movements get shy around the question of the centrality of violence to politics, for instance. So. You know, for good strategic reasons, we try to couch a lot of what we do in the language of nonviolence. And yet it's clear how central violence is both to the creation of the political space that we operate under, the perpetuation of existing regimes of politics that we confront, and arguably to the process of revolutionary change. For me, the process of facing reality is really, and this is a, a concept that CLR James uh, puts forward in his, his great contribution to the development of American communism. Uh, but for me, what this idea really means is to come to terms with the demands that we assume responsibility for when we commit ourselves to revolutionary politics. But this isn't always possible in the first, in the first instance. You know, it's a heavy burden and we don't necessarily know the answer in advance. Uh, and as a result, I think that there's this process of working through that we need to go through. In my book, I talk about it as a process of building rapport, of finding a way to acknowledge people's desires and acknowledge the aims that we set for ourselves, uh, and then to begin decoupling those aims from the strategies that we've developed to try to attain them so that we can say, okay, well, maybe these strategies are insufficient, but that doesn't mean that the aim is unimportant. Oftentimes what we end up doing is moving the goalposts, right? Like we change our aims. But I think what we have to do is to come instead to a gradual understanding of what the responsibilities are that befall us when we try to rise to the occasion and live up to those objectives, live up to those aims. So... I'm um, increasingly of the mind that developing some sort of strategy for building rapport both within movements and between movements and popular culture to talk about the importance of the desires for freedom, for happiness that guide us, and also by, to point out the inadequacy of the resolutions that we've posited for attaining those aims thus far. Is the reality also that we need to face one where we recognize and acknowledge that we have a little power to begin with? Is that why it's so difficult for us to come up with these strategies and tie them to our desires? I think, you know, I think people have very different understandings of the power that they do have. Oftentimes movements fail to make use of power that they have. Um, oftentimes movements present a vision of themselves as though they have much greater power than they have. And the practical work of building that power is often ignored as a result of the, those two misperceptions. To me, the best, uh, the best way forward is for people to experiment with the exertion of their collective power uh, you know, to try to find the limit situations, to try to find the places when things begin falling apart, and then using that as concrete information to be able to reevaluate, to be able to move forward. 
And so sometimes this can be made possible by, sometimes people can be emboldened by the kind of mythological conceptions that they might have. But oftentimes the myths, rather than being an incitement to action, become a kind of alternate path of pursuing it, right? And so we resolve things in our minds rather than trying to resolve them in, in reality. So I think that experimenting with confrontation can be pedagogically really important and, and it can give people a much better sense of their own power. And it can be useful in indicating to other people what their power might be as well. The essay that you wrote in the book called Making Friends with Failure is a critical review of the Richard Day book, Gramsci is Dead. And that book celebrates a lot of the small scale kind of prefigurative politics at creating autonomous zones and, and other forms of prefigurative work. And you make the argument that the book, by celebrating these efforts as advancements of left forces instead of the results of defeats, attempts to invert the reality of leftist defeat into one of victory and serves as a kind of a salve for leftist wounds. You're right, quote, failure is endemic to any project whose goal is as lofty as human emancipation. It cannot be ignored or appeased. It cannot be buried under good intentions or changed into its opposite by holding it up to the mirror of wishful thinking. What failure calls for most of all is honesty and the truth should hurt, end quote. Do, do prefigurative politics serve the purpose of acting as a solve for leftist wounds today? And if they do, do they prevent the left from acknowledging a truth that hurts? When I wrote the essay on Gramsci is Dead, I was really, really conscious of, you know, how that book came out as the movement against corporate globalization at the beginning of the 21st century was really falling into disarray following uh, the, the advent of the war on terror and the invasion of Iraq. It was a book that got a lot of traction at the time that it was published, around 2006. I think that people's understanding of the relationship between prefigurative politics and mass struggle or direct confrontation with constituted power have changed somewhat since then. But I think that uh, Richard Day's book remains important as a, a touchstone because it gives a very clear expression to a political current that I think still has uh, some traction and is still persuasive to a lot of people. I should be clear that my perspective on prefiguration is that prefigurative experiments are themselves very useful, that they're pedagogically important that people can discover a lot of, about their own capacities and about the possibilities for forging egalitarian relationships amongst comrades engaged in common projects or engaged in struggle. What bothered me about Day's book was that these experiments were posited as though they were alternatives to direct confrontation, that they were another way of achieving liberation that didn't involve direct confrontation with established power and the assertion of countervailing revolutionary force. This kind of argument, I think, was dangerous because it presupposed that prefigurative experiments could become consequential enough to transform social reality on a mass scale and not just at the level of the individual experiment, but that even as they did that, they wouldn't ever come into direct conflict with power. But we can imagine that, you know, the very minute something begins to gain traction as an alternative social possibility, if it's at odds with constituted power, it's going to get smacked down. And so the confrontation that you're trying to avoid by focusing on the prefigurative experiment ends up being caused precisely because of the successes of that prefiguration. The other major problem that I perceived with the argument was that it presumed that there was a kind of logical antithetical distinction that could be made between prefigurative, exper prefigurative experiments and instrumental politics. That instrumental reasoning, which argues that there are means to accomplish particular ends, is the opposite of prefigurative experiments where means and ends need to coincide. But if we think about the way that people actually engage in struggle, when we think about the 
work that people do in trade unions or when trying to form workers' parties, for instance, there's definitely a prefigurative dimension that arises within those spaces that people strive to forge new ways of doing things. They try to extend the scope or the meaning of democracy. And all of these things become useful tools and useful skills as struggles advance. So I think making this logical antithetical distinction between uh, prefiguration and instrumental reasoning, saying that they can't be connected or they can't be the same because they posit totally different relationships between means and ends, ignores the ways that, that things actually unfold in practice. But I wouldn't want to dispense with the idea of prefiguration. I think that it's a, I think it can be a really useful tool, but I think it's important to make distinctions between different ways of understanding prefiguration. So on the one hand, prefiguration is an analytic category. Prefiguration is the way of looking at something in the present to anticipate what it may yield in the future based on its characteristics, based on the tensions and contradictions that are contained within it. Um, and so this is an incredibly useful thing to be able to do because you can, based on that kind of thinking, see possible future outcomes contained in the present and you can decide which ones you would prefer to see realized and you, you can make your political strategy based on that. But in contrast to this notion of prefiguration as analysis, we see people talking about prefiguration as a kind of ontological or metaphysical category where on the one hand, at a kind of like minimal scale, you hear people arguing that in order for struggle to be truly liberatory, means and ends need to coincide because how on earth can you create liberation if you use oppressive means, which is a fair argument. Um, but what ends up happening is that it makes it much more difficult for people to even make a distinction between means and ends. The other version of this, more maximally though, is that people envision that the process of liberation is about living in the present some future that isn't yet realized, that it's an attempt to bring the future into the present by acting as if. And this can be very powerful um, as a procedure, but it often comes into conflict with reality. It often comes into conflict with the kind of definite character of the conditions under which we're struggling. But what strikes me most about it is that it's also a, a form of religious thinking, that it coincides with concepts that were really important within the Christian tradition and can be traced back to uh, John's vision of the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation or to Augustine's vision of the city of God, where the presumption is that you know, the way to make this work, the way to bring about this kingdom and to create this reconciliation between different planes is to operate in the profane world as though the sacred was already present and in that way to bring it into being. So there's something very powerful about thinking in that way, but I worry oftentimes that it gets in the way of coming to a concrete understanding of the, the conditions under which we struggle. And it seems too that your conversation really wants to expand on what strategies are available to us and how they operate together. And on that note, I feel like your essay, Daily Life, Not a Moment Like the Rest, really gets into some strategic conversations. Now, this essay was originally a response to David Harvey's lecture called Organizing for the Anti-Capitalist Transition. And in that lecture, he makes an analytic separation of, quote, daily life under capitalism as one of seven distinct moments in the body politics. Now, you argue that by making this conceptual distinction, Harvey's analysis slides into a flimsy strategy of constituting a, quote, anti-capitalist we along lines of normative ideals. You write, quote, normative ideals will never constitute stable ground for anti-capitalist convergence. 
Moreover, when considered alongside the concrete universality that can be derived from people's analytic reckoning with their experience of daily life, such ideals become superfluous, end quote. So what's accomplished when we situate daily life as a primary starting point for anti-capitalist analysis? And how does it help us to constitute an anti-capitalist we on concretely universal lines? David Harvey talks about daily life as one of these seven moments in the process of elaborating what he perceives as a kind of co-revolutionary movement that you have to be able to move from one moment within these seven moments to the next in order to maintain kind of like revolutionary uh, momentum and in order to improve people's chances of recognizing the interconnection of all of these discrete moments within capitalist society. So he talks about, you know, other moments include like the relationship with nature or the, uh, the technological processes of production or um, institutional arrangements. And this kind of conceptual parceling out of the world can be useful to help us look at the, the kind of discrete character the substance of each of these fields of social activity. And I think for Harvey, when he was writing this, it was, it was just after the financial crisis of 2008. He's at the World Social Forum, and there's this great possibility, you know, it looks like anti-capitalism is becoming a common sentiment in the face of the financial meltdown in the face of economic austerity. What bothered me about the argument and what I thought was useful to point out was that the moment he calls daily life isn't really a moment like the rest, that daily life is the precondition to all the others. It's the basis of experience. It's the basis of social reproduction. Um, it's the precondition for the creation of all the other relationships, all the other moments. So if you think about relationships of production, for instance, they presuppose what Harvey is calling daily life, which, you know, if, we've, if we follow social reproduction theorists or theorists of the social factory, we know that the reproduction of the commodity labor power is the precondition for the reproduction of capitalist production itself. And so, as a result, I think it needs to be given analytic and strategic primacy. What's useful about doing that is that it brings us into a terrain where we can map social relations on the basis of our concrete experience. So one of the presumptions that often arises when we start talking about experience is that it seems to valorize identity or valorize subjectivity. And I think that there are dangers there. But one of the positive things about building a revolutionary politics based on concrete grounded experience is that that experience is always an experience of social relationships. And those social relationships are totalizing, they're overarching, and that everybody's embedded in them, even though they're relationship within them is different depending on where they're situated. So this becomes incredibly useful for the development of a collective analysis of social problems and also for developing coalition politics. Because even if people are differently distributed within social relationships, and even if their experiences are therefore different, they're all the experiences of a common thing that's bigger than each of the situated accounts. This was the starting point for the analysis of the feminist sociologist Dorothy Smith, who talked about a process called institutional ethnography as mapping social relations starting from daily lived experience based on people's concrete situation within a broader social field that could be understood through a process of confrontation of coming to an understanding of how the local experience is organized by uh, translocal institutions and regimes. If you want to think about an example of this, um, think about the difference between talking about racism as 
an experience of oppression solely or thinking about racism as a social relationship. If you start thinking about racism as a social relationship, it becomes clear that not only people of color are affected by it, that white people also have an experience of racism, not as a form of oppression, but as a social relationship that organizes their experience of social reality um, and that produces effects that shape and modify their experiences. If you think about the phenomenal expression of that experience, you could say that for people of color and especially Black folks in the United States, one of the concrete manifestations of racism is fear of the police. And for white people in the United States, one of the concrete manifestations of racism is fear of people of color and especially of Black folks. So these superficially seem to be two very different experiences phenomenologically. And yet when you map the social relationships that, uh, that produce those two different experiences, it becomes clear that they're both responses to the same social phenomenon, to the same social relationship founded on primitive accumulation and the unequal distribution of property where white people's anxiety corresponds to the recognition that they are in possession of something that doesn't belong to them. The fear of the police uh, for people of color and black folks especially corresponds to the recognition that they will always be perceived as potential interlopers uh, trying to move into the space to reclaim things that according to racism should not belong to them. And so once you begin to understand the social relationship that unites these two experiences, it's not necessary to come up with a, like an abstract normative ideal to say, oh, this is the basis upon which we should unite. We should unite, uh, as liberals say, because we should get over prejudice or we should be nicer to people, or as radicals say, because racism is socially divisive. What we can say instead is that because of the concrete understanding of the social phenomenon, there's a common motivation for people who are differentially positioned vis-a-vis -vis that social relationship, who have experiences of it that are connected to that social reality, but manifest themselves in different ways to unite in common struggle, to resolve conflicts that arise within the register of experience, but that manifest themselves in different ways. And so I think that when we're talking about revolutionary politics, getting to the point where we can move beyond normative ideals, which at their worst become just like a story about like what good manners are or should be, and instead get to an understanding of what are the concrete grounds for solidarity? What are the concrete grounds for shared projects ends up being much more valuable. One of the things that struck me about Harvey's argument as being kind of strange because he was really committing to following this sort of Marxist analysis and that he, at the end of it, he ended up producing the, um, many of the problems that Marx pointed out with the inadequacies of the, anal of the analysis put forward by, by bourgeois materialists and bourgeois idealists where they end up giving an abstract account of material reality and then they supplement it with a, an abstract account of norms or ideals as a kind of compensation. My point is that when we look closely at it, we don't really need the compensation. strategic primacy in our analysis too also pushes us organically to start recognizing how mainstream media and culture and advertising and commercialism also shapes our social relationships in our daily life. 
And on that, you, I, I really love this essay, Avatar and the Thing in Itself, because in it, you sort of chide fellow leftists for their consistent failure to recognize how capitalist culture, produced by the profit motive, is constantly seeking to fulfill collective desire, but it's by necessity fails to satisfy those desires. And you write that, quote, advertisers continue to be far better than us at recognizing that it's the secret desire for an actual revolution that leads consumers to identify with a revolutionary new product, but that the radical scene's tendency to celebrate its own marginality has made it difficult for us to relate to significant mass cultural phenomena, end quote. And you specifically argue that the film Avatar, quote, provided us an opportunity to turn identification with the film into disaffection with the world, end quote. So can the arguments you make here be summed up as kind of in the Marxist tradition as capitalist culture creates its own grave diggers? And if so, how might radicals better situate themselves into helping generate more disaffected grave diggers through discourse on mass cultural phenomena? When Marx talks about capitalism producing its own grave diggers, he's really thinking about it from the standpoint of production, you know, like the the creation of the ever-growing, you know, army of proletarians who come together in factories and discover their power at the point of production. You know, they become the grave diggers and it's necessary for capitalism to produce them. But the way you said it, you're suggesting that the same thing might be happening in the sphere of consumption as well as in the sphere of production. I think I think there might be something to that where when you think about the problem of profit for capital, it needs to maintain increased rates of consumption in order to complete the cycle, in order to realize profit out of surplus value and then to be able to reinvest it. But in order to maintain ever-increasing consumption, you need to be perpetually stimulating desire. The kind of base-level use values required to reproduce a life are fairly easily met by the capitalist market, you know, but that can't be the end of it, obviously. Uh, the profit motive won't allow it. So capitalism at this stage needs to be perpetually stimulating desires and simultaneously suggesting that the consumption of the commodity is the only way to realize the desires. Now we know of course that there's this huge disconnect between the desires that capitalism stimulates and the promise of the commodities that we end up getting. Uh, I think like the experience of consumer remorse is the, the obvious example of that where people have fantasies of fulfillment that accompany them on shopping sprees. But then when they get the thing home that they bought, like they realize that it's just like a lump of stuff and that all of the desires that they had associated with its consumption end up not being resolved, right? And then they're just left with a fairly banal commodity that might have some use value, but the use value doesn't correspond with the desire that had animated the consumption or the use value that they thought they would realize through identification with the promise of the desire. This is an explosive kind of situation and it could lead to disaffection with consumption. I think ultimately it could lead people to say, oh, well, my desires can't be fulfilled by consuming commodities. It can only be fulfilled by asserting freedom through production, you know, freedom through the creation of a a new world, a different kind of reality. But I think the, the radical left has been really bad at identifying with that pretty common everyday desire that people have to find fulfillment through consumption because we recognize the inadequacy of all the consumable objects. And I think this is especially true when the commodities pretend to be political. Uh, and this was certainly the case with films like Avatar, right? Where we know how to critique them for their inadequacy from the standpoint of the politics that we would want to advance. So we hate the film for, you know, it's uncritical woman as prize plot device, or we hate the film for the presumption that people with disabilities uh, should want to be saved from their circumstance. 
we especially hate the fact that the film reiterates a kind of white savior complex that people had pointed out was very similar to films like Dances with Wolves or The Last Samurai. Now, all of these things are true, but at the exact same time, this became the top grossing film of all time at the time that it came out, that masses of audiences had been fundamentally transformed by the experience of it. And they, in some cases, set up peer counseling hubs for themselves online in order to deal with the depression they experienced after seeing the film. Meanwhile, indigenous people all over the world, including in Palestine, actively embraced the film and its images and its story as part of their own anti-colonial resistance to uh, to occupation and to resource extraction. So during the demonstrations that happen weekly in Berlin, in Palestine, uh, demonstrators dressed up as the alien figures from Avatar in order to draw attention to just how real the thing that people had seen in the theaters was and how close to home it was that it was happening on this planet all the time. Other indigenous groups reached out directly to James Cameron to say, yo, look, this thing is happening here too. So it was interesting to see anti-colonial movements, indigenous movements all around the world actively trying to make use of this uh, popular story that had become so resonant for so many people. But meanwhile, on the radical left, especially in America, in the US, we ended up being pretty satisfied with imagining that just writing like scathing indictments of the film's inadequacy and posting them on our blogs or whatever was somehow a revolutionary strategy. I think it's clear that it's not. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have critiques of the film, but at the same time, I think it does require that we begin to understand what desires had led people to identify with the film, despite its inadequacies, and how those desires could be related to, how they could be decoupled from the uh, object resolution, the film itself, so that they could be emancipated and pushed in another direction. So to think about how this might happen in practice, for the next time a film like Avatar comes out, for instance, I think rather than writing scathing indictments on our blogs, it might have been more interesting if we had gone out to the theaters and tried to leaflet people as they were leaving screenings, saying, yo, if you think this is bad, you should come out to, to Standing Rock. You know, there's a fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline or whatever else it is that's happening at that moment. Um, and suggest to people that there's another way to find the realization of the desire that animated their attachment to the film, especially when because they themselves recognize that the film itself is inadequate, that it doesn't ultimately satisfy, but maybe revolutionary politics might. That tendency, too, to, to critique, to tear down without that compounding effort to strategically move beyond those limitations, the left also has a tendency to do that against each other. The essay that you wrote about occupation, decolonization, reciprocal violence you discussed the less remarkable tendency towards fratricide and the weaponizing of words or even the weakening of words at times. In this essay, you discussed the anti-colonial critique that was leveled against Occupy Wall Street in its early days and noted how that critique was primarily motivated by a desire for what you call conceptual negation as it sought to locate the, quote, representational antithesis of the thing we oppose, end quote. And, and you were writing that the critique of the term Occupy failed to address the need for a conceptual distinction between, quote, their occupation and our occupation, which is an argument invoked uh, by a couple of different people, and one of them being Carl Schmidt, who recognized that politics is a fundamental antagonism between friend and enemy, and that occupation as a tactic is entwined with historical efforts at decolonization, as evidenced by the occupation of Alcatraz launched by the Indians of all tribes in 1969. So is the pursuit of conceptual negation of the representational antithesis of the thing we oppose, is it another symptom of leftist defeat, and maybe even more specifically of the defeat of North American class politics? And also, how does addressing Occupy Wall Street's conceptual problem help the left advance stronger forces for decolonization? I think the problem of logical conceptual negation 
is really pervasive in radical thinking. And it arises from a fairly honest reflex. We see our enemies and we see how they behave. We are like mortified by their use of power and violence. And because they're our enemies, we imagine that it therefore behooves us to do the exact opposite. So we imagine ourselves as being on the side of nonviolence or on the side of the dissolution of power. I think this is really conceptually affirming. You know, it allows us to make clear distinctions between us and them at the level of ideas. And it allows us to define ourselves as being uncontaminated by the relationships of power and domination that we see our enemies contribute to. The problem, of course, is that in political confrontation, it's very difficult to avoid entering into uh, contests of power, that determining who will win in a political conflict really depends upon which force is able to gather more power and to use it more effectively. Now that power might stem from very different sources. Socially, it might look very differently, but to presume that it's not power and that there isn't some kind of symmetrical relationship between their power and ours, I think is to fundamentally misunderstand what political antagonism involves. You know, I think there's some understanding of this in leftist movements. We recognize, for instance, that it's possible to be against imperialism and militarism without necessarily saying that we should therefore be suspicious of a concept like class war. You know, we can envision war in that specific sense, uh, even though we're opposed to militarism. Similarly, we can abide by a basic premise that a picket line means you don't cross it, but we don't have to believe that if the picket line was set up by anti-abortion, anti-choice activists surrounding a, a clinic, you know, we would want to smash that picket line. So there are specific cases in which we can understand this, but I think that the problem of logical conceptual negation is nevertheless really pervasive. And we see it in like the refusal of power, for instance, in a lot of movements, or the attempt to, to try to change this character that rather than power over, we want to see power with, for instance. But oftentimes in those formulations, we fail to acknowledge that the purpose of creating a collective power with is to assert a power over existing social relationships in order to transform them. Uh, so it's kind of like, you know, kicking the problem down the road and avoiding the fact that politics is really about adversarial relationships. And the question becomes who's capable of amassing power in order to determine what social relationships are going to look like. This problem found a really, really clear expression during the Occupy movement, where the anti-colonial critique of the movement emphasized that the very concept of occupation was really inseparable from the legacy of colonial domination. And as such, it seemed impossible that a movement could be fighting for liberation uh, while organizing itself under conquest's banner. So in opposition to occupation, what the anti-colonial critique advanced was instead a politics of decolonization, which I think is a really important thing to do. I think that any instance that we have where we can advance uh, anti-colonial anti politics, decolonial politics should be taken advantage of. And I think that it's really important that people try to introduce that into the conversation. But what was troubling to me about it was that the idea of decolonization was posited as the logical conceptual negation of occupation. Occupation was understood as having a concrete content that people associated particular tactics with occupation, like taking over space, but there were no comparable set of tactics 
that got articulated with respect to decolonization. It was like clear antithesis of occupation, or was suggested to be, but nobody said what its content was. It went unspecified. And I think that this was a result of the fact that it was perceived primarily as a logical conceptual negation. What's stunning is that when you look at the history of anti-colonial movements in the US and the Indians of all tribes occupation of Alcatraz is a great example, but there are others as well, including the occupation of Columbia University in 1968 uh, by a coalition uh, including Students for a Democratic Society and also uh, the Students African American Society, uh, civil rights and black power organizations from Harlem, is that when you start looking at what decolonization means in practical terms, very often it ends up looking like occupation, that the means by which decolonization is achieved is through the conquest or reconquest of territory, attempts to define a group that is asserting sovereignty within it and an attempt to reorganize social relationships. And so this process, which was very much in evidence in the Occupy movement as well, was you know, very, very present on Alcatraz, very, very present during the occupations at Columbia University. And yet those were anti-colonial movements, right? So positing a kind of antithetical relationship between occupation and decolonization doesn't really make sense when you recognize that historically speaking, anti-colonial, decolonial movements in this country have operated on the basis of occupation. Now, there are all kinds of strategic questions that arise around, well, who should be doing the occupation? Even if we say, okay, this is an occupation for liberation, there are questions about like who the constituency should be. Um, and I think that those are important questions to ask. But one of the things that struck me was that with the Occupy movement, there were a lot of people who were involved who weren't necessarily attentive to the problem of colonization at the inception of the movement, but who either became so or could have become so through the process of the movement itself and could have been an incredibly important coalition partner for active anti-colonial struggles across the US. But because of the way the political problem was framed, the likelihood of those coalitions emerging seemed to be suppressed, that the critique was aimed less at trying to complete the movement and showing what its ultimate possibilities might be, and instead seemed aimed instead at making it inadmissible or disavowing it as being politically legitimate. It feels like a bit of a shift in the conversation. However, when reading the essays, the conversations about tactics, strategies, collective desire, I feel like they really culminated to their final expression in the last essay, of the book called The Battle for Necropolis. And I just want to say that this was my particular favorite essay in the book, largely because it was so hard to get my head around it. Within this, you're, you're talking about strategies for attaining the commons, and you argue that history itself is one such form of commons. And following arguments made by Walter Benjamin, who wrote that, quote, there is a secret agreement between past generations and the present one, end quote, you argue that radicals today need to forge a union with the dead and write, quote, if there is a union between the living and the dead, the practical task falling to the living is to free the dead from the social surplus so that their estrangement might come to an end. Concretely speaking, this involves learning how to dismantle and reconfigure the accumulated matter of the built environment so that it might finally coincide with the will of those who produced it. No small task to be sure, but even if the living rise to the occasion and commit to reconfiguring the social surplus, we must still determine what sort of earthly task can be assigned to the dead. One answer is this, we must allow and even insist that the dead remind us of the desire that animated their efforts while alerting us to the many ways that such desires have historically been susceptible to capture and recuperation, end quote. This is a beautiful quote, uh, beautiful writing. Now, Marx wrote in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte that, quote, 
the tradition of all the dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brain of the living. So how in our effort to forge a union between living and dead labor, do we avoid the tragic comedy put by Marx when history repeats itself first as tragedy and then as farce? I really like that you're bringing these two texts together. The, you know, the passage from Walter Benjamin that you talked about, ideas that came up in his uh, essay, Paris, Capital of the 19th Century. It's a, it's a beautiful counterpart to Marx's 18th Brumaire. And both of, the, both of the essays start with this problem of historical recollection and historic recursivity. And both of them end with like bourgeois monuments crumbling. Benjamin is clearly aware of Marx's 18th Brumaire. And yet you're right, there's a distinction in the way that they talk about historical recollection. In the 18th Brumaire, Marx talks about the distinction between the revolutionary characteristic of the bourgeoisie in the 18th century and contrasts it to the revolutionary character of the proletariat in the 19th century. And he says that the bourgeoisie is totally unheroic, but in order to accomplish its revolution, which required violence of all kinds, you know, it had to draw deep on myths and recollections of like the Roman Republic. And so it dresses itself up like the Roman Republic to accomplish its historic task. And Marx argues that for the proletariat revolutions of the 19th century, it's necessary to break with the past and let the dead bury their dead. And so this is very at odds with what Benjamin says, where he says there's this secret bond between the living and the dead, that there's an obligation or a debt to the past and it can't be settled cheaply. So how do we reconcile these two things? I think it's important to note that Marx's claim that the revolutions of the 19th century, proletariat revolutions, need to let the dead bury their dead, isn't saying that the past is unimportant. He's saying that what's required is a process of working through so that accounts can be settled, and so that the past isn't simply invoked as a set of unassimilated myths that can be used for strategic advantage at given moments when people don't know what to do. Instead, it's like the, the past has to become fully worked through, fully assimilated, so that people can move forward. And he, he uses the metaphor of people learning a new language, you know, that when we're in the process of learning a new language, one of the reflexes is to try to translate something we hear back into our native tongue, you know, in order to truly understand it. But it's only at that moment, like when we fully accomplished that, that then we become fluent in the new language and we can move forward on the new terrain. So then the question arises, well, how do we fully assimilate the past? How do we work it through so that the dead who, are, who make up the past are present with us? I think that for me, the best way to think about that is to recognize how concretely present the dead are in our everyday lives, not as specter, but as matter, that the built environment is a tremendous accumulation of dead labor. And as a result of everything that we know about dead labor from Marx, we know that it is accumulated through the process of exploitation. And so there's a disconnect between the labor that produced it and the desires that we can imagine that uh, people felt as they went about their lives. Um, but we're stuck in this relationship with production. The matter in the built environment contains the dead in this unresolved state. Coming to terms with that and becoming responsible for the resolution of that problem that gets passed down to us is one of the ways to think about revolution that can break us from imagining you know, utopian futures or becoming seduced by myths of progress. You know, when we think about the relationship of 
production as we experience it in our daily lives. We enter into workplaces where the means of production are made possible through the accumulation of dead labor, that as constant capital, means of production are just a composite of dead labor accumulated over time. Uh, because all of the profit that's realized through the production process gets reinvested in means of production, or at least that part of it that doesn't get invested in like like cocaine and yachts or whatever. What we have like at the site of production is workers, living workers in the present, being exploited by machines that are made up of the dead labor of workers in the past. And so normally we confront dead labor as an adversary in our work relationship. So the question then becomes, what would have to happen in order for us to forge a union between the living and the dead as workers at the site where we confront the dead, we encounter, we enter into a relationship with the dead at the site of production itself? In order to answer that question, it's necessary to say like, well, what were the unrealized desires and what were the unfulfilled promises and potentials that existed at the moment that the dead labor was extracted, that we might recover and try to fulfill in the present, not through myth, not through like invocations like of the Roman Republic, like the bourgeoisie did, but concretely through the dismantling and reconfiguring of the built environment. This is a vision that permeates like the revolutionary culture in some of its best moments. You know, when you think about de Rudy's claim during the Spanish Civil War, that the proletariat was not in the least bit afraid of ruins, you know, and that the fascists might, the bourgeoisie might blow everything up before leaving the, the world stage, but it didn't matter because we carry a new world in our hearts. I, I think this is a, you know, a practical expression of the same insight. And so one of the things that I try to do in this chapter is to just begin systematizing that um, and trying to get people to become more attentive to the presence of the dead all around us all the time. Again, not as specters, but as material culture and becoming attentive to the non-resolution of that culture and imagining what might be required in order to actually find resolution, to actually make it accord with the desires of those who helped to create it. Um, and so this is a, a strategy for thinking about revolutionary politics that I think might be useful in the present. Something else you accomplished in the essay that you wouldn't know otherwise is that it did get me to re-embrace the song Solidarity Forever that I've been so tired of for so long. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, there, there's some great lines in that song. It's such a, it's such a weird thing because... I think every radical trade unionist right now hates solidarity forever just because of the abuse that it's endured at the hand of the, the labor movement as it became deformed through the experience of the post-war compromise. But when you look at the lyrics, they're, they're really radical. You know, there's an explicit articulation of the labor theory of value. There's the beautiful declaration that we shall bring to earth, we shall bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, which just begs the question, you know, like where precisely are these ashes going to come from, if not through decisive struggle? And there's a real honoring of the dead that ends up happening in the lyrics as well, where the description of standing outcast and starving, that's the wonders we have made, follows a discussion of the whole history of labor as a sequence that builds up the material culture, that builds, that builds up the, the environment in which we live. And so what we end up seeing is that it's not just us who stand outcast and starving. It's like every worker who ever lived who contributed something to the creation of that material culture stands out, outcast and starving along with us. It's a, it's a beautiful insight and it's, and it's very suggestive when thinking about, you know, who's in our, who's in our union and how do we envision our commons? You know, I, I try to argue that the past itself needs to be seen as a, a common in danger of perpetual enclosure, but it doesn't have to be that way. 
And in his essay on the concept of history, Benjamin describes revolution in part as a process that makes the past citable in all its moments or that gives us the fullness of our past. Um, and I find that to be a very useful and provocative way of thinking about revolutionary politics that kind of breaks with the, the myth of progress. The book is Premonitions, Selected Essays on the Culture of Revolt. I've been speaking with A.K. Thompson. I really love this book. I recommend it to everybody, and I think it's on the top five of my list these days for what I've read recently. I appreciate you being on the show, and I hope we can talk to you again soon. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for your great questions. 